Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Thank you for joining us again today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We have a bunch of wine topics to discuss with you today. The first is from Wine Folly, Best Italian Red Wines for Beginners. And Kim, we love talking about Italian wines, and this is one of your favorite sites it to is. discuss. It is. I love this website. Such good information for beginners, for intermediate wine drinkers, for people that just want to know more about wine in a very understandable, comprehensible kind of way. She writes good material and good infographics, and she puts out some good books as well. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in, in her, take a, a look. I'm, I'm trying to think of her name. Madeline. Pick it. I knew you would know <laughs> So to start off with this saying, and we always give out a number, Italian grapes, they, there's reports of 1,000 to 600 different varietals of Italian grape compared to the second most region, which would be France, which has about 300 grapes. So to say the best ones to start for beginners, there's a lot to choose from. Right. There's a lot to choose from. And it it is a tough topic to tackle, I think, as a beginner, because there are all these unfamiliar grape names, all these unfamiliar place names. But what was kind of nice about this list is that while there is a lot of diversity and a lot of new things, there are a lot of familiar things as well. So a lot of familiar flavors in the wines. I just think think that if you turn off the idea of, oh, I need to know the grape or I need to know the place and just experience what's in the glass, there's a lot of wonderful flavor to be found. And again, this was red Italian wines for beginners and she broke it down by region. And Kim, when our listeners talk Italian wines and reds, what do you think is the most popular red people think about in Italy? I would think beyond anything else would be Chianti. Yeah. That if anybody knows anything or doesn't know anything about Italian wine, they've at least heard the word Chianti. Chianti, yes. And the grape is the Sangiovese grape, and it wasn't mentioned in this Wines for Beginners. So I thought that was an interesting style. Yeah. And I wonder if they did that intentionally, because it is more familiar. So I think what was going on in, at least from what I took from this list, is less familiar grape varieties, maybe regions that weren't so familiar to people, but then the styles were much more approachable and leaned a little more towards the fruity end of things, which I think a lot of Sangioveses do not do. So I think she was going for a little bit more of a friendly international style, something more fruit forward, something that folks who are used to drinking American wines could kind of wrap their palates around. Yeah, she should have she should have really named it like best Italian reds, not Chianti, right? To get you <laughs> off Chianti. But exactly. Let's start with the north. She starts with the Piemonte region and she mentions three red grapes, Barbera, Dolcetto and Brachetto. You, you, you always get me on that, right? right? This I always time. say bruschetto, <laughs> bruschetto. So let's talk about those three red grapes, Kemp. So the the one that is probably the most familiar to people in this list, I would say, is probably the Barbera. Barbera is really the workhorse grape of this region of Piemonte, up in the north of Italy. So a lot of everyday drinking wines are made from this grape variety. It is almost always made 
really dry, but it still has a lot of flavor and a lot of texture to it. So of this entire list, I actually think that the Barbera and the Dolcetto are going to be the driest and the least fruity styles. But if people are familiar with Chianti and want to start experiencing other Italian reds, I think this is a really great place to start. They're very food friendly. They go great with all sorts of Italian cuisine, but especially heartier things. So think pasta with meat sauce and lots of tomatoes, um, maybe things like porchetta or anything with prosciutto. You know, you're looking for a kind of richer foods because these wines are going to balance really nicely with those things. Yeah. In this region, Piemonte, many people have probably heard of the region Asti, which is from Piemonte region. So you, one of the common Barbera is Barbera di Asti. So Barbera from the Asti region. And both of these grapes, Kim, Barbera and Dolcetto, to me is about uh, the acidity and like you said, the fruit. It's like a fresh cherry fruit. For me, Barbera is more acidity than Dolcetto. And that's how I kind of differentiate the two. Mm-hmm. These two grape varieties often go hand in hand. Producers will usually make the both of them. So it's it's sort of nice to experience them from the same producer and kind of taste them side by side. And you can have a, a good idea of what the differences are between the grapes. But I do find that they make similar styles of red wine. Yeah, and Dolcetto, another fun fact for you, Kim, the Dolcetto actually translates to little sweetness right. is what they call the grape. And, and being But the that lower, doesn't mean that the wine is sweet. And I yeah. think that that gets confusing for people because the word Dolce, I think, is one of those words that Americans, you know, if you know any Italian at all, you're like, oh, Dolce sweet, La Dolce Vita, kind of all that. But it doesn't mean that the wine is sweet. It means that when it's it's ripe, that the grapes are little and that they are very nice and sweet. Now let's move on to a Brachetto. Mm-hmm. Grape, red grape, but usually you see this in a pinkish style, fully sparkling or what they call spumante style. Right. I like that you brought up Asti a minute ago because this is, I call this the the red sister to Asti, Asti Spumante. So most people are familiar with like Martini and Rossi, Asti Spumante, really sweet, sparkling wine, not like champagne at all, except for the bubbles. This is its red sister. So it's sparkling, it's sweet, it's red, but you can still see through it. It is absolutely delicious. It's it's frothy. It's fun. It's fruity. Yum, 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 yum. Um, <laughs> I really, I really like bruschetta. It's something that is, I think, completely different for people because there's not a lot of sparkling red wine out there. And, and this is just a really fun, easy to drink wine. We both love that. And every time we show this wine, I think people are surprised by it. It makes a great chocolate pairing wine mm-hmm, to absolutely. me. Absolutely. Uh, so let's move on next to the what she calls the middle of Italy, but the central part of Italy. And it's all about the one red grape, Montepulciano, Kim. Another name that people may be familiar with after Chianti, I think this is probably the most popular red wine that American drinkers are familiar with from Italy. So Montepulciano is a grape variety that, like you said, is planted very, very widely through the center of Italy. And there are a number of different regions that use this as their primary red grape, but it's most widely known from the region of Abruzzo, which is where you get Montepulciano d'Abruzzo from. Again, similar to those Barberas and those Dolcettos, dry, medium weight, kind of dusty fruit to it, and also very, again, very food friendly. Another great red for people to start with from Italy. Second most planted red grape next to Sangiovese, which we talked about using Chianti. It's also grown in the Marche region. But again, going to that, we, we talked about earlier, it's it's a more fruit approachable wine, more fruits to it, more cherry fruits, mm-hmm. maybe not as acidic at times to, to Chianti, so easier to drink. And also 
usually really affordable. Like you can find some really good tasting examples of this for 10, 12, 13, $14. So not an expensive wine. And there are some out there that are really yummy that absolutely will not break the bank. These are Tuesday night wines, as I like to call them. And just a, a quick note, can we talk about this a lot when we do Italian classes, is that there is also a town in Tuscany called Montepucciano, which does not grow the Montepucciano grape. So you can see Montepucciano on a label. If it's from Tuscany, it's a different grape. So people, that's one of the more confusing things yeah, in totally Italian confusing on that wine. One. Now let's move on to, I guess they call the southern part of Italy, and they talk about two grapes, uh, Primitivo and Negromaro. Right. And these are both coming from the same region, which is Puglia. Sometimes you might see it listed as Apulia, but Puglia is the region. It is the heel of the boot, if you are thinking of Italy as um, as, a, as a boot kicking a soccer ball. The soccer ball is Sicily, and Puglia is, is the heel. It's very, very hot and dry down in this part of the world. So the red grapes that grow there are super ripe when they get picked. So you have these full-bodied, really bold, really fruit-forward, sometimes higher in alcohol red wines. I love that reference to the, the, the soccer the reference. Soccer ball. The Italians would love that too. <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard heel and toe. I've never heard a heel in the, the soccer, soccer ball. ball. But that, that's a good good uh, little comparison there. So Primitivo has actually been linked, Kim, to Zinfandel grape. So you mentioned this region is very hot. So they get a tremendous amount of sugar in their fruit. And some of the Primitivas can be high in alcohol, but very fruity and very balanced. Mm -hmm. And if you like Zinfandel, this is something to explore. If you it, California Zinfandel is usually high in alcohol, but a different type of fruit, maybe a jammier style than a Primitivo grown in Puglia. Yeah. The way that I like to describe it more is, like you just said, Zinfandel from California has more jammy fruit. So like, like literally tastes like blackberry jam or raspberry jam. What I have found with a lot of these wines from southern Italy is that the grapes get so ripe that they start to be a little bit more like raisins. So that when the wine is finally made from these grapes, you you get a flavor of dried fruit in there. It might be figs, it might be it might be raisins, it might be dates, these dried fruit characters. So sometimes more of a of a cooked character to to these overripe kind of wines, but still very, very tasty. And and I do often see uh, this family resemblance between Zinfandel and Primitivo. And Negramaro was mentioned for a good red wine for beginners. And this is probably, of all the ones on the list, were probably the hottest I would explain to a, a someone beginning to explore Italy because it's very tannic. Mm -hmm. It's almost rustic in style. Yeah. And there's darker fruit to it too. Very and sometimes dark. kind of that spicy element. I find that Negromaro is more similar to Shiraz sometimes. So if people are Shiraz drinkers and they like Syrah, they like those heavier, you know, really kind of tannic red wines, that this is a nice one to check out if that's the style that you're into. Next, let's move on to Sicily or the soccer ball, <laughs> as you call it today. It. And it's all about Nero Diavolo. Right. This is the main red grape of Sicily. And you see it planted kind of all over the soccer ball, but a lot of it is in the eastern part of of this region around Mount Etna and then up against where the mainland of Italy is. So it grows all sorts of different styles from relatively light ones and can sometimes be used in blending to pretty, pretty hearty rustic wines as well. Yeah, very dark in color, very dark fruits. You can find some good price points. I think any Sicilian wine, you can find some good price points, but I agree with this as a starter. It's something different but it does have good fruit and it's a nice heavy red. Mm -hmm.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Great article in Wine Enthusiast magazine about decanting wines. And there are a couple of different reasons why people might decant their wine. And I know, Mark, that you are a big fan of doing this to all sorts of different kinds of wines. Yeah, I like I like decanting. I find myself at times not wanting to spend the time to do it. And I think a lot of people, the ritual kind of, they don't want to spend the time. They just want mm-hmm. to start drinking. But it's all about aeration. And I just wanted to mention, Kim, you had talked about this as a wine enthusiast article. And I think in the past you had mentioned, if people are looking for some very basic wine articles, wine enthusiast is probably the go-to. Uh, it's not as technical maybe as wine spectator, which breaks down regions. But I just want to mention quickly, wine enthusiast, that we take a lot of these articles lately from. Very good publication. Right. I would agree. And aeration. Let's get back to that. Decanting. Why do we decant? Um, Basically, I always tell people anything that's young, anything that's old. So I guess that's every wine you could decant in some way. Right. So, you know, they're kind of, I would step back a little bit and there are two main reasons why you might want to decant a wine. And what decanting just means that you're pouring it from the bottle into some other kind of vessel. There are also aeration devices, which are a little bit different, and we'll get to those in a minute, but you could be transferring your wine from a bottle to another container in order to aerate it, give it some oxygen, make it open up and make it taste a little bit better. Or if you have an older bottle, or if you have a big red that has some sediment in the bottle, so that's tannins that have settled out, and then you've got some gunk in the bottom of it, you might want to move that wine to a different container so that you can get it off of that gunk. So there really are two different different reasons why people might want to decant a wine. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, I'm, I'm assuming first we're going to talk about aerating it, pouring pouring it into some sort of vessel, right? right? So, and you said the main reason for that would be to get the sediment out and to aerate it. A lot of times you don't know if there's sediment in that bottle. So you have to be careful and there's a whole technique of how you're supposed to pour it into the decanter. A lot of people have a light, the the, the pro psalms will use a candle, very romantic ceremony. <laughs> I personally never use a light. I just hold it at an angle and kind of watch the neck and when you get to about maybe two inches left in the bottle, I would say, Kim, you, you look. And if you start seeing any chunky stuff start floating up, you know to stop because yeah. you're going to start pouring sediment. I try to use a little bit of a light. I wouldn't have a separate light, although flashlights do work really well for this. But sometimes I have some wines that I use in my tastings that they might not necessarily be really old, but they might be, say, five years old. And there are certain grape varieties that just sometimes have this sediment in bottle. And it's usually a sign of a, a better quality wine. But I have some specifically one like Alianico from Southern Italy always tends to throw sediment. So there are certain ones that I will try to be extra careful with and decant anyway, regardless of if I know that it has sediment or it doesn't, just because I know that that grape variety or that a a bottle with a little bit of extra age on it just might have some of this in the bottle. So I'm a little bit more careful with those because the last thing that I want to do is pour some of this sediment into the glass of someone who is there for a tasting and that they, they might not be expecting it. So I try to do that, go that extra step and make sure that somebody is getting a nice clean glass of wine. Yeah, you're always more thorough than me, Kim. (laughs) The glass decanter thing, there's so many different, I don't want to say weird, but crazy type of shapes and sizes. To me, it's all about just something that has a little bit of height and a little bit of width. So when you're pouring, you're kind of splashing it and aerating. Yeah, you can Uh, find all sorts of shapes, a 
out there. Yeah, we go- we have like three different shapes of decanters at home, not because one does a better job, but just because they look nice. And you know, I recommend find one that you can clean easy. Yeah, that because is a big deal. If it's fancy deal. and it has a skinny neck, then you need a special brush to clean it. <laughs> so find something that has a wide opening, wide base. Take advantage of it. It does make good presentation. And you can also get some inexpensive, maybe even, I hate to say it, but boxed wine and pour it into a decanter and you'd be surprised. Your guests will have no idea. You think it's something fancy here. <laughs> and it so. will taste a little bit nicer if you give it that extra little bit of air right at the beginning. So let's go into the aeration effect of it. Like why, I know that you're a big fan of doing this. What do, what are you getting out of it when you're, when you're decanting a younger wine in order to give it some air? Yeah, now aeration, there's all sorts of other devices, as you mentioned, Kim. You can, you can put things on the neck of the bottle that's swirling the wine through it. And basically it's just gushing air through the wine to open it up because that wine has been sitting sealed tight and it needs to breathe, as they say. And this is just a quicker way to do it. So a lot of times I'll put a little gadget in the neck of the bottle and pour it through. It's a little glass or plastic vessel and it's injecting air as you're pouring it and basically opening that wine up. It's not being poured in decanter. You can aerate it and decant it if you want to get crazy, but I find aeration always helps. So it was something that was brought up in this article about one of the reasons why you might want to do this that's not mentioned all that often is to let some of the sulfur compounds blow off. And I know that we notice this sometimes a little bit more with wines that are bottled under a screw cap, that sometimes when you open that bottle, you might get this little hint of like a... a, an eggy kind of a, uh, of an aroma or it might smell a little bit like cabbage or something. Those are sulfur compounds. And in such a tight environment as a screw cap wine, sometimes those those compounds will get trapped in, in that wine and they need a little bit of time with some contact with oxygen to kind of blow off and show at its best. So I was wondering if you've had better results using your little aerators with screw cap wines than with cork finished wines. I think with both, you yeah. see definite change and they may mentioned volatile compounds and they also mentioned sparkling wines and I know Kim a couple of times you caught me aerating sparkling and being the bubbly queen this is one of my pet peeves yeah you hate that oh I don't see the point in decanting a bubbly wine (laughs) they did mention in this article I can't remember they said because of the carbon dioxide was it good or bad they They mentioned it but they weren't saying saying to do it because I was going to say ah I'm going to get Kim on this yeah because carbon dioxide they said of the things that you want to blow off when you do decant sometimes there might be a little bit of carbon dioxide sparkle in there that you don't want there so that's one of the reasons why you would do this is to get rid of that but if it's a wine that intentionally has carbon dioxide in it with that with that bubble that you don't want to lose that you want to capture that but I've seen other articles that have said the opposite that are like yes you should decant everything even your sparkling wine I saw an article like last week about that and I'm still on the other side of that fence no I'm not going to be decanting anything with bubbles I think this certain types of sparkling the traditional style where it's fermented in the bottle can be very overpoundly yeasty from the mm-hmm. from the aging in the bottle so sometimes you can decant it to blow off that kind of yeastiness to me maybe you know you like that style but ten, people tend to like the more fruity prosecco type of thing you don't want to decant that it's fresh you want the bubbles so do you find that good champagne has the the, the bubbles will last for a little bit longer even if you do decant it like is there enough is there enough going on with the quality yeah, of the think, bubbles there that so. they can withstand it. I yeah. think the finer champagnes, the finer bubbles last longer, obviously, than the, the ones they're just carbonating. Right. And, and those are big bubbles and they don't last at all. So I, I don't think it matters uh, if you decant those, but you're killing the fruit, I think, more. Mm-hmm. 
well, it's back to aerating. Right. It's it's something it's something a lot of times and be honest with you, when when I'm home, I have all these gadgets, I have all these decanters, and usually I, I don't do it as much as, as if we were doing a class or a tasting to present it right. So bottom line on decanting and aerating anything young and old, which means means pretty much you can try it with anything and see if there's a difference. It's the same thing as when you're pouring wine in your glass and you're swirling it around. It's just more of a preparation or more of a, uh, I don't want to say technique or a presentation yeah. factor. Presentation. One word of warning that I, I would say is for bottles that are very old, you don't want to give them too, too much air because they might be at the very end of their lifespan. And if you give them too much oxygen, then they might just fall apart. And I know that this is the case too with wines that have been open for for a while. Like if you have a bottle that's been on your counter for like oh, four or five days, it's been open, and then you pour it into another vessel and give it a lot more air, that's going to fall apart a lot faster. So if you're trying to enjoy the last bit of that open bottle, try not to slosh it around as much because it's going to hurt it. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine today. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. So we started out with talking about red wines from Italy. Now we're going to talk about an article that was in backlabel.com. Is it cool to drink chilled red wines? And of course, because, you know, most of my answers to wine questions is a very firm maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe, depending on the wine. Uh, so there, there is this, you know, trend with lighter style red wines. And yes, you can give them a little bit of a chill and they are going to taste a little bit better. So I think that the bigger question here isn't, can you chill red wines? It's why do we chill certain wines and why do we drink other wines at closer to room temperature. And there, there is science behind it and there are good reasons behind why uh, there are different serving temperatures for different styles of wine. Yeah, and we're talking chilled, not not cold. No. I think you have to We're talking be like, you know, a half an hour to an hour in the refrigerator or in a, you know, a little bit of ice, but no more than that. So if you're looking at an actual thermometer and, you know, how cold should my wine be? We're talking kind of, you know, 50, 55. So not refrigerator temperature, not that cold. Just a little bit of a chill. And this is really for lighter fruitier styles of red wines. So your California Pinot Noirs, your Beaujolais, they even mentioned some other more obscure grape varieties from the north of it, north of Italy. Like there are some... Zweigelt. Zweigelt, that's right. And there are some other things from Germany, from Austria that are, are lighter, lighter reds. And a couple of things on reds, light body, as you said, Kim, low tannin. They mentioned Tempranillo grape, which is a Spanish red grape, but you have to be careful. Tempranillo, that's not a lot of oak typically in Rioja they use a lot of oak and I find if you chill a red that's oak it's just it's oak tannins can hurt you mm-hmm. a lot if you chill them so let's get back to two ways we can cool a wine they mentioned Kim fridge 30 minutes and ice and water bath yeah I tend to use the ice and water bath if I have the time and if I have the ice on hand because it does cool things down really really quickly it's it's quite clever but other than that if you have the time put it in the refrigerator for a little while but if you have a, a bucket that's going to fit a bottle or two and you throw in some ice and then fill it up with water because that's going to do a much much better job than just ice and your bottle of wine believe it or not so typically a white wine you chill it's 45 to 55 degrees a red wine 
room temperature is good at like 58 to 65 so that's cool room wanna... temperature though like i don't think yeah. you know americans don't i mean if your house is at 62 you're turning the heat on and they're, so... <laughs> and they're talking about taking a chill to the room temperature red so the, the fridge they're saying put it in 30 minutes so it's at room temperature you put it in the fridge 30 minutes i like to say the 20 minute rule i think 30 is a little long so you put it in the fridge 20 30 minutes take it out that's chilled right so now it's chilled i like the other thing they said here about spice in the wine will pop if you chill it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Have you ever experienced that where you made it cooler and you got more spice out of a wine? I do think that the flavors do change when you chill it down a little bit. And it's not just the flavors, but also the textural elements that that will change and will do this. They, they say that will it will pop. I think that berry fruit definitely does the same thing but i would say that you know sometimes you get these more more of a sweet spice you know more of like a nutmeg cinnamon kind of a spice and less of like a black pepper spice and that's what i find in a lot of these wines especially something like beaujolais if you've got these sort of fruit punchy notes then there are almost these like fall spice kind of notes in there as well yeah that's a good example beaujolais uses a, a gamay grape similar body style to like a pinot noir but more fruit so yeah, way chilling that i can see pinot noir you have to be careful with because if it's not a hundred percent pinot noir it could have some heavier grapes in there and it can come off as a little bitter if you chill it i feel mm -hmm. and that's always one thing i'm afraid of when i chill any red wines that you're going to kill the fruit and get more bitterness right and that's one of the reasons why red wines don't tend to be chilled because as you cool a wine down you make the alcohol and the tannins in the red way come to the front. So you will deaden the fruit and then all you will, you won't really taste much, but you'll feel it. So you'll feel the burn of the alcohol and you'll feel those tight, that tightness of the tannins. So that's why we tend to drink our reds at a little bit of a warmer temperature because then the fruit comes out and all of the elements of the wine play better together. For white wines, we chill them because you don't want as much of that alcohol to be tasted. The, the acids are brighter if the wine is a little bit chilled. And then those flavors that that white wine has, whether it's, you know, apple or citrus or peaches or whatever the heck is going on in there is going to be more at the forefront. So it's just, it a lot of it does depend on the weight and the style of the wine. What do you think is worse for your palate, Kim? A, a red wine that is served too hot or a red wine that is served too cold? Like what can you mm. not stand more than the other? I think a hot red wine because then I'm very sensitive to alcohol. So if the wine is too warm, then the alcohol starts to literally evaporate. So you get more of that burn and you get more of that booziness in the red wine. So I would rather have sort of a deadened, too cold, too tannic red wine than a boozy hot red wine personally. Yeah, if you, I think if you have a wine that's not really made well and it's heated up it the alcohol just yeah you're totally going to tell through and you can tell quality but if it's a well-made wine usually it's a little warmer it's more balanced and the alcohol doesn't hit you in the face as much right well this is one so. of those tricks that if you have a not so good quality wine and you serve it a lot colder than it should be it's going to hide a lot of flaws so that's why sometimes with like say a cheap pinot grigio sorry inexpensive, inexpensive. <laughs> yeah. not good quality white wine if you serve it a lot colder it, it's not 
quite going to taste as bad as if you served it a little bit warmer. Yeah. So just a reminder, we don't want to see ice cubes in your red wine, right, Kim? I mean, Please chill don't. it. No ice cubes. I see that in whites. I've never really seen. Have you seen anybody throwing oh, yeah. ice in? Yeah. <laughs> like the seen Italian burgundies, uh, uh, fortissimos or something like uh, that. Yeah. You know. More of a wine cooler or actually drinking it? Drinking with, red wine really? with an ice cube. Well, well, I mean, sometimes your reds are served a, a little bit too warm. So you are chilling it. Yeah. I sometimes let people know that if you get fake ice cubes, so they're like reusable ice cubes that you can throw back in your refrigerator, as long as they're well cleaned and they're, they're not, they don't have any freezer flavor that they're imparting to the wine. Sometimes I'll throw those in mine to keep my white wine chilled and it doesn't dilute it, but it keeps it nice and nice and cold. So sometimes I will, um, I'll cheat a little bit and do yeah, that. That's a good idea because it doesn't let all that extra water in there, right? right? So and that's, that's the thing about idea. using ice cubes. It's not that it's changing the temperature, but that you're diluting the wine. So even if you throw two ice cubes in there, you might be upping the water content by 20% in your, your glass of wine. So that will totally change the flavor and totally change the body of the wine. But if you have a reusable ice cube that isn't going to dilute it, I say go ahead. I'm being a little bit of a renegade. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and we love exploring all these trending wine topics with you. You can find out more about our show at Facebook, The Wonderful World of Wine, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Cheers. Bye, bye.